This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we're pleased to welcome Mitch Ditkoff back to the podcast to talk about storytelling at work. Among the topics we'll discuss are why creating a culture of storytelling is important for any company, which functions of a company it's most imperative to have master storytellers in, and how to go about facilitating a storytelling circle at work. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Mitch Ditkoff, the co-founder and president of Idea Champions. Mitch is the author of the just-released Storytelling at Work, How Moments of Truth on the Job Reveal the Real Business of Life. He has worked with companies including GE, Merck, AT&T, NBCUniversal, Coca-Cola, and many more to improve their innovation capacity. Welcome back to the podcast, Mitch. Thank you, Will. Happy to be here. Absolutely. We're delighted to have you back. So let's kick things off today talking about the importance of storytelling and building positive corporate cultures. It's something that you wrote about in the Huffington Post earlier this year. Why do you think that storytelling amongst the members of any organization can help teams perform at higher levels? Well, there are a number of reasons why it's so powerful and why it affects that whole dynamic. Uh, to begin with, it's probably the quickest way to establish trust among a group of people. People want to know who they're working with, not just what their title is, what their function is, but who they are beneath the surface. And the telling of stories and the listening to stories is one way to establish that. You get to know who that person is, what they value where they're coming from, what they know, what they don't know. It's about establishing a sense of authenticity and rapport. So that, that's number one. Uh, by extension, it builds community. And an organization is not just a parallel universe of a bunch of individuals working alongside each other. It's about people connecting and collaborating. If there's no community, if there's no sense of a greater whole, then that company is missing out on a very big variable, and that's the the uh, rapport and, and connection between people. So storytelling is one way to accelerate that. And uh, equally as important, it storytelling is a container or a vehicle for people to communicate what they know to each other, the best of their best practices, what they've learned, what they value, uh, their insights, their wisdom, their brilliance get a chance to be conveyed, not by uh, uh, evangelizing or didactically trying to convince people of something, but through the vehicle of stories and storytelling. So all of that uh, goes into the soup of why storytelling is so powerful to create a positive corporate culture. And if there are one or two functions or areas of a business that you think it's an absolute imperative for people to be able to tell stories in a compelling way, what would those areas be? Well, two sides of a coin. I'd say one side of the coin would be senior leaders. And uh, those are the people who 
set the tone for a company culture. They're the ones who set the expectations. They are the carriers of the vision and the mission. They're the ones who people are looking to, to establish a sense of who we are, what we're doing, and why we're here. Those people, if they're interested in really transmitting or translating the essence of that organization to others, they need to consider using story as the mechanism or as a mechanism to do that because in the telling of stories, they very compellingly get to communicate the values, the principles, the DNA of that, of that company. So senior leaders, certainly one. And on the flip side of the coin, everyone else. <laughs> you can call them the rank and file. You can call them the employees, the workforce. Whatever name you have is, is secondary, but it's people who are working together. They need to be sharing their own stories with each other, not just sitting passively in a conference room or an auditorium and listening to the senior leaders wax poetic uh, via storytelling. So the the people that are working with each other need to be able to use stories as a way to convey meaning and essence to each other. Yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm going through just as part of my, you know, everyday job outside of the podcast, a, uh, a kind of educational program called Story Brand that, that you, you may have heard of. And, and uh, the guy Don Miller, I believe is his name, says that the single most important thing a CEO does every day or should do every day is tell the story of his company. Absolutely. And, and when people forget the story of the company, they lose their way. They are showing up to work and they are being transactional. They are checking things off a list. They are being civil servants. They're getting things done. But the heart and soul of what they do is often leached out. And when you lose the heart and soul of what you're doing, the real purpose, that which gets you out of bed in the morning, which is communicated most tellingly via the telling of stories, uh, people lose connection with that. And then they just go through the motions. That's why if you deconstruct any holy book or scripture, or book of wisdom, you will find that that book is basically composed of stories in the form of tales, allegories, parables, distilled down narratives that have contained within it the core principles of that teaching. And that's how people learn via stories. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the word wisdom, Mitch. Uh, one of the longtime friends of the podcast, Rowan Gibson, has a blurb on the back jacket of the book. I truly love this book. Mitch Ditkoff has delivered a modern classic on how to communicate with wisdom. So let me ask you about the book and to tell the story of how it came to be. Uh, thank you for that. It's a great question, and that's probably the core question for me to respond to. <laughs> Very simply, I'll try to keep my story short and to the point. About four years ago, somebody asked me uh, what I did and how I do what I do. And I thought about it, and I started to give them kind of my canned response, and that didn't satisfy me. And I got curious, why is it that I have impact when I go out to these organizations? Uh, focusing on innovation and creative thinking is really the main uh, elements of, of what my work is about. When I, I started to reflect on it 
and deconstruct what I did, I broke it out into various elements, almost like the periodic table of elements. And I looked at what those elements were. And when I looked at storytelling, which was one of the elements, a light went off in my head because I realized that every time since 1987, when I tell a story, either my own story of, of life in the, in the, in the uh, organizational development lane, or a classic teaching story from any tradition, the Red Sea would part in the room. People would get super engaged. I could see the mind quiet down and open up. I could see people leaning forward. And what I wanted to communicate to people going in, and not just going in like a fact or a statistic, but going in and sticking, going in and being remembered, going in and activating some reflection on their part about what that means. So that little epiphany uh, opened up the floodgates for me to pull that, pull on that thread, so to speak, and not just bury it in what I normally do, but to give it its, its just due, to give it its proper attention. And out of that uh, awareness, out of that recognition, I began the process of writing this book, which is basically composed of two sections. The first section is uh, a series of my own stories, uh, autobiographical from the realm of work, moments of truth, experience on the job that had great significance to me and by extension uh, to others. And secondly, uh, a reflection at the back of the book, 16 essays, on what is the big deal with stories and storytelling? Why do they work? Why are they so powerful? Why are they universal? Why all the way back to the first Paleolithic cave paintings were people communicating via story? So what is that about, and why should we care? So the combination of my own personal stories in conjunction with the art and science of why storytelling works, that's really the DNA of the book. Okay, nice. And you cite some mind-blowing stats about the pace at which life moves these days in the second half of the book. And, it, 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 you know, they really make storytelling that much more important, I think. But let me throw a few out there. In the last 60 seconds, 168 million emails were sent, 700,000 Google searches were launched, and 60 hours of YouTube videos were uploaded. So your last answer probably lasted about two minutes. So you can yeah. double all of those stats in the last two minutes. Uh, but you, you, write in the, you write in the book about this leading to something called information fatigue syndrome. So what is IFS and how does storytelling help us connect with those who, like ourselves, may be suffering from IFS at any given point in time? Yeah, thank you. Good question. Information fatigue syndrome, which is a cute uh, euphemism, um, acronym, mm -hmm. uh, acronym, IFS, is, is another word, another phrase for information overload which I think everyone can relate to. There is so much to process in the course of a day. If you have a computer, if you have a TV, if you have a, a smartphone, if you're living in a community of people, 
the number of interactions, the number of people pushing information in your direction, trying to persuade or convince you or to communicate something that will affect your behavior is gigantic. And this phenomenon is doubling, almost like Moore's law, uh, <laughs> radically, almost, almost daily, it seems. So what happens is people start to blur out. They get fuzzy. They get numb. They kind of get dizzy. There's just too much to deal with. So the need to communicate is still there, but the mechanisms of communicating, which have become uh, massive from Twitter to slideshows to uh, Snapchat to short videos to long videos, spin doctors on TV and everything in between, we just don't seem to have the capacity to make sense of it all. So we either blank out or we just quickly say yes to something that has leaked its way through our, uh, the guardians at the gate. What I'm suggesting in the book for people who really want to communicate something of meaning to another person, to a team, to a department, to a whole organization, or to the world, is to consider using story as the platform or the vehicle to do that. Because story cuts through a lot of this kind of information overload scenario, this information fatigue syndrome. Story engages, story awakens, story ignites, story is met with the least amount of resistance. Anytime someone says, once upon a time, or, hey, Will, I have a story I'd like to share with you, something kind of opens in you, as opposed to, I'd like to lay some statistics on you, Will, or here are some facts. Uh, <laughs> I'll send you a PowerPoint show. And it's like, please, don't. But when someone says, I have a story in which they can distill down all of the hoo-ha, I'll call it hoo-ha, that they've wanted to, to communicate to you, and they're able to do that in the form of a narrative, a tale, a story. Fictional or real, it almost doesn't matter. Something in you hears it at a deeper level, and something in you retains it at a deeper level. That's why all the great teachers teach in stories, and all the great public speakers, the, the really skillful politicians, the really skillful business leaders, will pepper their narratives, their talks with story, because they know that's what goes in. So we have to be mindful of that and use it wisely for a high, a high purpose, as opposed to a manipulative purpose, which, like anything, everything has, a, has its front side and its back side. The manipulative use of stories shows up as hype, as spin doctors, as propaganda, as many, you know, as, as false advertising, trying to manipulate people into behaviors that they really are not into, but somehow the purveyor of the communication telling a story in a dark way is actually, you know, preying on the person's ability to listen to a story and act. So we want to tell meaningful, purposeful, uplifting, and honorable stories as opposed to manipulative stories. Yeah. And do you find that there is kind of one medium that works better than others? So some people learn differently, they say, right? Like some are auditory learners, some are visual learners. And when I ask about a medium, I guess I'm, I'm thinking like 
is video best for telling story? Is it the written word? Do you find that there is, is it in, in person stories? Do you find that there is one kind of method that really tends to stick with people the most? Well, uh, I'm old school, and I'm going to go to uh, this just in, in person. <laughs> in person, okay. Imagine people talking to each other um, uh, when possible. I know it's not always possible. Uh, that has the most power because so much is going on in that interaction above and beyond the words. There's the body language. There's the tonality. There's the feedback you get from the listener that provides the storyteller the kind of cues that enable them to respond to the capacity of the person listening in a way that the story uh, is more powerful. Uh, it's a two-way event. The listener creates the space for the storyteller to really perform at the highest level. Telling a story via a, a, you know, a video or a podcast or a written you know, in a magazine or a blog, that's another way to do it, but it's kind of a one-way street. So while I do that as well, and this is, you know, we're having an interaction right now, but the people listening uh, aren't talking to me. <laughs> They're not asking the questions. Mm -hmm. But this also has the capacity to go out to thousands of people. So I, I value all medium that would enable story to uh, play its proper place in our society. Sure. So let me ask you let me ask you a little bit about the mechanics of story. There's a chapter in the book on how to tell a good story that lays out the five component parts of any story. Can you give us some insight into what those five component parts of story are? Uh, uh, yes, I'd be happy to, but I, I would like to preface what I'm about to say by uh, a small caveat, and that is that my book, Storytelling at Work, is not a primer on how to tell stories. Mm -hmm. It gives some clues about it, and there are many fine books on the topic of how to write or tell a good story, probably hundreds or thousands of them. What I'm saying in the book is that everybody already is a good storyteller. They are telling stories all of the time, even if they don't acknowledge that. Every day we're telling stories to our friends, to our neighbors, to the bartender, uh, and so on and so on. It, it is what psychologists call an unconscious competence. In other words, we know how to do that, but we don't always know that we know how to do that. And if you were to ask somebody who's a good storyteller, what are they doing? <laughs> what have they done? They might look at you cross-eyed like, well, I have no blank and clue what I do. I just tell stories. That being said, if you want to get scientific about it and break it down, which is useful, you could say there are five elements to a story. And here they are. There's the setting. That's where a story takes place. Is it in the desert? Is it in the mountains? Is it in a bar? Is it in the home? Is it in a hotel room? Is it in school? There's the character or the protagonist. That's the person that's having the adventures. So that person needs to be compelling and interesting to the reader or to the listener. There's the plot. What happens to that person? What kind of adventure are they going on? There is obviously got to be conflict. That's really the hook. There are obstacles. So this compelling character is on a journey, some kind of hero's journey, you might say. 
and runs into obstacles, conflicts, things along the way that they have to deal with and resolve, which leads to the fifth part of a good story, which is called theme or resolution. And that is, what's the breakthrough? What is the insight? What has been learned? What has been resolved? What's on the other side of the adventure? When we look back on the story, what can we say that person X actually experienced? And so the confluence of those things, well done, creates a whole which we call story or a narrative. Okay, and, and Mitch, you, you write in the book about having helped companies like GE, Pfizer, and countless others figure out how to innovate successfully through the power of story, amongst other things. What are some of the ways you put this into practice when you're consulting with companies like GE and Pfizer? Well, these days, um, there are four ways in which I, I kind of enter into the mix. Uh, the most obvious way would be, you could call it a keynote or an interactive keynote. It's a presentation that frames out what this whole monkey business is all about. Why does story matter? Why would a company spend any time attending to how they can create a culture of storytelling or use storytelling wisely uh, towards whatever their business goals are? So that's an awareness-building piece. Then there is an extended version of that with a smaller group of people. You could call it a workshop, and that could be a half day to a full day. Uh, where everybody in that room uh, already is committed to learning about this topic and wanting to dig in for how they can actually apply this real time. So that's number two. Number three is something which I call either storytelling circles or wisdom circles. And that is getting a small group of people, probably no more than 10 together, for up to two hours to share their stories with each other stories, again, which I call moment of truth stories, not just uh, something trivial, but something meaningful that has happened to them, primarily on the job, in the workplace, which is often the last place that people look for real meaning because they're in survival mode. But often on the job, lots of fascinating things happen to us. And I'm trying to get people to actually notice what those are and begin extracting the meaning from them and sharing those learnings with their peers and their colleagues. So those are storytelling circles or wisdom circles, lightly facilitated. It requires a facilitator, otherwise it can devolve to therapizing or people hogging the show or trying to fix each other, which is not what it's about. It's about creating a forum for people to actually learn from each other the best of what people have to share with each other. And related to that, which is the fourth element of all this, is teaching people how to run those wisdom circles so that it doesn't depend on me, but that I can come in and, and do a keynote or a workshop, and then I can train uh, a crew of people who really want to do this work, and then they can be the in-house resources to run these kinds of circles. All of which, by the way, will, you know, if you... If you double-click on what I just said and like, oh, why would we do this? Um, what I'm saying is in every organization or every team within an organization, there is an untapped human resource. And that untapped human resource is the collective insights, brilliance, and wisdom of the people who work in that particular organization. Often, 
goes unexpressed, not shared, buried. And if people start to come out of the closet and actually have a safe, useful forum to share the best of what they know with each other, you will discover that engagement rockets up, inspiration rockets up, people are learning and teaching each other, less reliant on outside experts or outside consultants, and building a capacity internally to make the best use of that knowledge base, sometimes uh, referred to as tacit knowledge, that which is hard to communicate, a wisdom that someone has that's hard to communicate any other way but via story. So this creates a vehicle or a mechanism for people to share the best of what they know with each other towards the end of that company succeeding in its goals. Okay, so Mitch, the book, again, is Storytelling at Work, How Moments of Truth on the Job Reveal the Real Business of Life. Do you have one or two favorite stories of your own from the beginning 38 vignettes that you could share with listeners? Well, I have 38 favorite stories, (laughs) but for the sake of brevity, (laughs) uh, I'll tell one. And this one is called The Joe Belinsky Factor, and here we go. Several years ago, I was teaching a course, a workshop, you might say, on creative thinking that was open to the general public and representatives of various organizations. It's a one-day course, uh, very well received. At the end of the session, when it was over, and I was uh, just putting my stuff away, a gentleman, a participant, came up to me, a beaming, radiant bald-headed gentleman from Ohio from Goodyear Tire. And he looked at me and he said, "Uh, we've got to bring you into Goodyear. We need to get out of the box. And I'm thinking, as a young entrepreneur, startup venture, fantastic. Goodyear would be a great client. I'm thrilled that that this gentleman is so uh, excited about the course. So he said, I'm going to call you, and we'll talk. And I went, great. Uh, Some months passed, actually a year passed, and the phone rings in our office, and it's him, Joe Belinsky. And he says, Mitch, uh, remember me? I said, yes, I do. And I'm thinking, great, we're good to go, rock and roll. This is going to be fantastic. And he says, you know, we still need it. But the time isn't quite right. We're going through a lot of changes here, and I'll be in touch. I said, okay, great, no problem. We chit-chatted for a while and hung up, and um, I'm thinking, well, maybe in a few months he's going to call back. A year passes. The phone rings. It's Joe Belinsky on line two, says Nancy. I pick up the phone. He asks me if I remember him. Of course I do. We have a lovely conversation, and I am waiting for the moment of truth where he's just about to buy the course for his organization when he says, you know, we have some organizational changes going on here. The company is going through some shifts. It's not the right time to bring you guys in. And I respond with, uh, sure, whatever, it's okay, uh, just keep us posted. <clears throat> Year three, <laughs> he calls again, and uh, we repeat the conversation. Year four, year five, 
year six, once a year, on line two, Joe Belinsky checking in to tell me it's not quite the right time. By this time, it's become kind of a phenomenon in her office. Every time uh, something takes longer than we think it should take, it's, uh, it's about Goodyear, or it's, a, it's, it's the Joe Belinsky factor. In the seventh year, he calls. I pick up the phone. He says, Mitch, guess what? And I say, uh, Goodyear was bought by Microsoft. Your CEO was abducted by aliens. You know, we had become kind of buddies, so this sort of humor was okay. He says, no, it's time. I went, well, what do you mean it's time? He says, it's time to bring you guys in. Everything is aligned. All the ducks are in a row. We need in R&D to take a look at what we can do to invent different things, to think out of the box, to innovate. I was flabbergasted. It was a seven-year cycle, almost like a biblical kind of cycle. You know, you hear of locusts and plagues and and all kinds of arcs of time that take quite a while. Well, this was what we have fondly referred to in Idea Champions as the Joe Belinsky factor. So I proceeded. Uh, we filled out the paperwork. The contract was signed. In a couple of months, I was in Ohio once a month for two years working with the R&D department. Goodyear became a steady client of ours, in fact, our best client, and for a couple of years it was 40% of our income. So you might ask, why did I include this story in the book? Well, I included the story in the book for the same reason I included all the 38 stories in the book. Each story illustrates a quality, an attribute of a human being, some aspect of our life, how we are in work, courage, creativity, patience, kindness, compassion, effort, perseverance, the, the DNA, you might say, of, of anybody who's successful in the world. This story illustrates something about our relationship to time. In this case, my relationship to time and how short-sighted and impatient uh, I tend to be. And it's not just me, it's all of us in this hyperactive ADD culture where everyone is looking nanoseconds into the future, not years into the future, we tend to hustle and bustle way too fast, and we lose track that certain things take time. Uh, if you think about Arnold Toynbee, uh, the gentleman who wrote The History of Western Civilization, he's famous for having said, I sat down one summer to write my book and 27 years later, it was done. He had a big arc of time. He waited. He allowed things to incubate. He allowed things to take shape. Sometimes in business, it takes a while. This doesn't mean that we should be passive or inert and wait for the tooth fairy. But it also means that not every project that we're involved with is going to happen overnight. In the case with Goodyear and, and Joe Belinsky, it took seven years. I had to rethink and confront my attitude and my relationship to time. And it was very healthy for me to see that if I just hang in there and pay attention, stay in relationship, in this case to this gentleman called Joe Belinsky, in time something would happen. So that story illustrates 
this quality, and I ask the readers to contemplate, to reflect for a moment on their relationship to time. Are they managing time, or is time managing them? Is there something they need to be more patient about and allow to percolate, to incubate, to manifest in its own sweet time? Or is there something they can push along and something they could hurry up? It's not to say you should wait, you know, as the, as the uh, Hopi Indians could see things seven generations into the future. Every action they took, they considered the implications for seven generations out. Or Indians from the continent of India have a, a, a phenomenon called the yuga, which is a measure of time that's actually 12,000 years long sometimes spoken of as the in-breath or the out-breath of God. That's not a nanosecond. That's thinking long-term. So I'm, I'm encouraging my readers and I encourage my, encourage my clients to think not just so short-term, but also think long-term. Take the long view and allow some things to take their own sweet time to develop. The Jobolinsky factor. <laughs> Nice. Well, the Joe Belinsky factor would say that there's a time and a place for everything. That's a very fitting story to wrap up with, Mitch, because as I was putting together the questions for this podcast, I was looking back at the at the outline that we had for last year's podcast episode with you, and it was the last one, I believe, that we did of 2014. So uh, as I was looking at the, at the sign-off for that episode, I was talking about taking a break from publishing the following week due to the Christmas holiday and starting back up in 2015, publishing episodes on Mondays as opposed to Fridays. So we've all come full circle in some form or fashion. God bless Joe Belinsky and God bless you, Mitch Ditkoff. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks so much. We'll really appreciate it. Absolutely. If you're interested in learning more about Mitch Ditkoff, you can visit his company's website at www.ideachampions.com. You can follow him on Twitter at, at Mitch Ditkoff, and you can find his blog on the Huffington Post and at the Idea Champions website. Mitch's latest book is available on Amazon as a paperback or a Kindle edition, and bulk orders of three or more are available from the Idea Champions website. Thanks again to Mitch Ditkoff for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're excited to have Mark Schaefer on the podcast to talk about growth through innovation. Some of the topics we'll discuss with Mark include how to use the social web to become a person of influence, why we should all learn how to get past the decline of face-to-face -face conversations, and when and how to use your social media accounts to punch your clients in the nose. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. To learn more about the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com. To subscribe to receive new episodes of the podcast directly in your inbox, you can go to www.3pillarglobal.com slash podcast. You can also download the Innovation Engine's very own iOS app from the iTunes App Store, and you can subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and SoundCloud. 
If you like this week's episode, please give it and us a thumbs up in your podcast player of choice. You can also share episodes of the podcast using the hashtag Innovation Engine. And if it's on Twitter, be sure to mention at 3PillarGlobal. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.